Welcome to the Start of Grind podcast. Starting a company is not for the faint of heart. They're always questioning, 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 tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. Where we talk to entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and thought leaders about how to build a great company. Like my friends, like you think you're crazy. I think you gotta be a little nuts. And change the world in the process. We optimize for impact instead of profit. It's never been a more exciting time to be an entrepreneur. From Startup Grind chapters across the globe. The chapter director for Cape Town. Boise, Idaho. London. Mala, Palestine. Guangzhou, China. And delivered to you every Monday and Wednesday. It's a startup grind. This podcast is brought to you by HBX, Harvard Business School's digital learning initiative. Introducing Disruptive Strategy with Clayton Christensen, an engaging and interactive online learning experience from Harvard Business School's HBX. Learn to create winning strategies to position your organization for long-term success by applying proven disruption and innovation theories from world-renowned strategist Clay Christensen. Disruptive Strategy encourages active learning and peer collaboration and requires a commitment of approximately 30 hours over six weeks. Applications are being accepted for upcoming cohorts in August and October. To learn more, visit DisruptiveStrategy.org. Hey there, and welcome to Wednesday's episode of the Startup Grind podcast. Today we have a great interview with Aaron Levy, CEO of Box at Startup Grind's Global Conference earlier this year. Aaron has been CEO since co-founding the cloud storage company in 2005, and he served as the company's product and platform strategy visionary. His plan incorporated traditional content management with elements of social business software. Aaron is also an advisor at Eight Partners and used to serve as an intern at Paramount Pictures. Aaron speaks frequently about content and collaboration at events like Startup Grind, Fortune Brainstorm, Web 2.0, Dreamforce, and Accenture Global. Aaron studied business at the Marshall School of Business at the University of Southern California. Let's listen into Aaron Levy live at Startup Grind's Global Conference earlier this year. Interviewed by Fortune's Michael Lev Ram. Why are, are you guys standing? Ovation. That was great. That was like a five-person uh, standing ovation. That's great. Thank you. I don't think it counts unless it's the entire room. Do you guys just like really like enterprise software, or what? What's happening? Okay. Um, well, thank you for that welcome. I'm sure it's for Aaron, but very nice. Um, I think it was for you. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so, okay, so you started Box. We're going to just jump right in since we yes. only have 20 minutes. Um, you started Box about 10 years ago? Actually, uh, 11. 11, yeah. to be precise. Uh, really hardcore. Back yeah. when you had even more hair. I had a lot of Still hair. Still have a lot. Do not go to Google Images. <laughs> kind of um, looks like yours. So it was, <laughs> it was sort of. Great. But higher um, up. Even like more it vertical. Went, uh, it more went vertical. vertical. Got it. I had a lot of more vertical <laughs> distance. So on back the hair. to enterprise software. Yes. Um, so. <laughs> So I remember meeting with you years ago, and yeah. you were talking, this is way pre-pre-pre-IPO, pre-a-lot, pre-like five office moves ago, probably, and, um, and you were talking about bringing sexy back to the enterprise. Mm. You remember this? Not with the hair I had, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I do remember this, Do yes. you feel like you've done that? Uh, I, maybe for like a, like a couple weeks or whatever, but the... Um, uh, what, what, what we were trying to do in, in uh, and that was like 2010, 2011 timeframe, mm -hmm. when uh, when you know when doing enterprise software was still considered to be a very boring um, you know kind of very 
um, slow moving, uh, sort of not a lot of innovation. You know, we were coming off of a decade of really consolidation in the enterprise software industry. So the biggest things to happen in enterprise software was, you know, Oracle would buy a, a company and integrate it and, um, and you would get, you know, technology that wasn't very usable, it was very slow, it was very cumbersome, it was very complicated, it was very expensive. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the state of enterprise software in all of the sort of, you know, 2000s. And, um, what uh, companies like Salesforce did, what Workday did, uh, what a number of other kind of early disruptors did was said, what if we could actually um, disrupt traditional enterprise software approaches? The, the selling cycle, the, the, how we build the software, how we update it, how people use it, the consumer experience of it. Um, and uh, and we, we sort of started to see that, that there was this inflection point where um, more and more entrepreneurs that otherwise would have gone into the consumer market were starting to go into the enterprise market because you now had sort of the floodgates were opening um, in the enterprise software ecosystem where users could bring technology into the workplace, where they could begin to solve problems themselves. They didn't necessarily need to just go to IT to solve those problems. Um, and, uh, and so that, that was the kind of inflection point right around 2010, 2011, a lot of it was, was also amplified by the iPad and the iPhone, and all of a sudden you had these new devices coming into the workplace that didn't work with the traditional IT mm -hmm. stack. Um, and so all of that sort of culminated in, uh, in what we think was uh, a sort of renaissance in, early, uh, uh, in the early 2010s of the future of enterprise IT, which is, um, which is how do you bring a consumer, uh, consumerized experience toward enterprise software? And so we thought that was sexy, at least on a relative basis. Right. So, and you've obviously grown up a bit. You we have. Just, you're talking about it as a renaissance now instead of a Justin Timberlake song. Yes. Um, uh, fair but, point. <laughs> what do you think has, has changed, really? Because, like you said, when you were starting Box, I mean, at the time, a lot of your peers were starting consumer-centric companies. Um, and you, of course, had to go and get a sales team and hire people with enterprise sales experience yes. and, and experience kind of across the board. Um, is that still necessary today if you're starting an enterprise company from, from scratch? Yeah, so maybe just so I have a sense of the, the audience. Uh, who's building enterprise software? Okay, got it. So this will be relevant for about seven people. So basically, <laughs> um, so... There were uh, at least eight. Okay, okay, I think I saw eight. Fine. Who's building consumer software? Okay, who's building... Who's in the wrong room? Yeah, exactly. Who... <laughs> Who's not supposed to be at a tech conference right now? Um, uh, I guess this is, everything is tech. So who's uh, not building software, but it's just selling a thing? Okay, <laughs> got it. Okay, who just lives in Redwood City? Okay, Any, okay, okay, got it. Um, what, uh, uh, so what are the other kind of companies people are doing? What? Is anybody like building a retail kind of concept? Oh, cool, thank you. Okay, all right, so anyway, a lot of different innovations. So here's the point. So, um, so at least for us, uh, what we found was, and maybe you'll find a way to apply this to your own business, but um, what we found was in the traditional enterprise software world, and, and this is true whether you're selling to businesses in any kind of sense. So if you have a services business and you're selling to enterprises, um, I think the same thing would, would largely be true even if it wasn't software. But, but what tends to happen, and, and uh, Clayton uh, Christensen, I think, is coming up next, and, and, um, and, uh, and, and he's really the, the kind of guy to explain this whole thing, but in the traditional enterprise software world, what started to happen was 
the software companies were building more and more complex technology because they were going after the higher end use cases for all of their customers, which meant that at some point, they started to build technology that was sort of too complex for the average business or the average end user in these businesses. And, um, and I'll, I'll leave it up to kind of Clay to explain the whole phenomenon of, of, of why that happens and the innovator's dilemma, but essentially in the mid-2000s, we got to a point where traditional enterprise software was just totally broken and totally complex. And so what we said was, well, with the cloud and with mobile, you get the ability to really democratize technology. Anybody on, at any time can download your technology, download your software, access it anywhere, and, and really start to, to use this new solution. Um, and, uh, and that was a really, really important disruption in the distribution of enterprise software, but not necessarily the, the sort of sales process of enterprise software and the, and the sort of acquisition uh, process of enterprise software. Because on the other end, on the IT side, you still have a CIO and an IT organization whose job and responsibility it is to vet and bring in the best technology to solve their problem. So I, as a software company, can get to them way faster, but them bringing me in and choosing uh, which technology they're going to standardize on, is, it takes you know, the same amount of time as it ever did. Mm -hmm. They just now have way more choices um, to be able to, to uh, work through. They have way more options in front of them. They have way more innovation working on their behalf, but we still have to go through a, the, a similar sales process. So we did have to sort of start to have this bimodal organization, which was one part of our company is going to be all about the consumer experience, all about the speed, all about the ease of use, all about the sort of the, the things that you attribute to a consumer technology company, but a whole bunch of other things we had to build up that look a lot more like an enterprise software company, which is we have a sales team, we have a consulting division, we have, um, we have some of our customers you know, take 18 months to buy our technology. These are all of the things that, that we used to hate about enterprise software with the big difference of the moment that they decide to choose us or, or, or some other product, they can roll it out nearly instantly. And so that's the, the, the real transformation is previously in enterprise software, you, you would you know, spend 18 months to decide what to buy, and then you spend 36 months actually implementing what you just bought. Mm -hmm. and, and that was actually where you see most of the failure was that 36 month process of the technology didn't actually work to solve the problems, it was too slow, it was too cumbersome. So that's the real disruption is, is you can bring your technology in at the end user level in an organization. You still have to likely sell to the ultimate buyer who's going to take the same amount of time that they did before. Mm -hmm. But once you do, you can roll it out fairly efficiently um, and nearly instantly. And so now today, fast forward, we have about 1,400 employees. And our organization has to sort of work in these two different work streams. We have mm -hmm. the consumer product managers and the consumer designers and the engineers that are thinking at sort of web scale and, and consumer scale mixed and married with the, 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 the sales reps that, that you know, come from more of a traditional enterprise sales background. And you have to make those two cultures you know, work together in, in harmony. Yeah. Easy. So that Super was easy. like 5,000 words in two minutes. Yeah. Um, Try so, to pack a lot in here. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so, so for the seven people to, that, have, uh, that have this problem. <laughs> that are going for the enterprise. You apparently have some more work in bringing yeah. sexy back. No, we, um, we uh, yeah. Apparently the renaissance just really is not uh, what I thought it would be, so. <laughs> Um, in addition to this, this is something that I think you can people can identify to whether they're on, on identify with whether they're on the consumer or the enterprise yes. side. But you see a lot of companies, um, a lot of startups, um, trying to to disrupt and, and innovate in um, regulated industries, mm -hmm. right? And so we've got everything from Uber and Airbnb on the more consumer side. Um, to a company, for example, called Zenefits. Mm -mm, haven't heard of them. No. Okay. Um, so, so for those who have heard of the, the controversy there, and we're not talking about the stairwell controversy, okay, but like good. the more adult version okay, of it. Okay, because I don't know anything so, about that. Okay. <laughs> um, what, but they brought sexy back. So. Yeah, they, they really did. Um, what, 
I, 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 I just thought it'd be a fun joke. I don't know. Well, it was great. Okay, okay. So, what, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs out there who yeah. need to be thinking about, you know, just just how do you approach regulated industries um, yeah. without running afoul? Basically. A quick break from the Startup Grind podcast for some recent startup headlines. eBay has acquired predictive analytics startup Sales Predict. Sales Predict uses machine learning to analyze wins and losses against other company data in order to predict which users are most likely to convert. They've previously raised $5 million. Line has announced it will IPO at about $32 a share, aiming to raise $1 billion, reports the Wall Street Journal. The firm will be offering 22 million shares in NYC on July 14th and 13 million in Tokyo on July 15th, with 5.25 million to be set available through a green shoe option if demand is high enough. Berkeley and Cornell researchers have developed transistors and circuits that are just a few atoms thick. They etched channels into conducting graphene, then seeded the channels with transition metal dicalcogenide. Both materials are single-layer crystals. The study lead says the method could ultimately lead to scalable manufacturing of atomically thin electronics. Let's get back to the interview with Aaron Levy. Well, yeah, that I can't necessarily. I don't have the framework for that second part. But but what what I what I have is um, is you know one of the coolest things about the technology industry right now is the industry itself is at some point actually going to be fairly meaningless as a concept because everything is going to be based on technology, right? So so you know this is like we're in the last period where there are going to be tech conferences uh, because because there's there's going to be every business no matter what industry you're in. Is, is going to be powered by by software, and and everything is going to have software and technology at the core of of of, uh, of, of that business. Whether it's a life sciences firm, whether it's a uh, a healthcare provider, whether it's a financial services provider, and um, and what what's happened in the past kind of five or five years or so, I, I'd say Uber is the sort of most um, uh, pronounced uh, and sort of discrete example of this because of how sort of significant of a transformation it's led to across so many different industries, whether it's transportation or insurance or, um, or the taxi industry. Um, but Airbnb is a great example in hospitality. What we have now is the opportunity for uh, building software companies that go after traditional non-technology industries. And um, it used to be for the first you know, 20 or 30 years of the tech industry, we kind of were fairly insulated. We basically just kept disrupting each other. Like somebody, you know, the, the Lycos people built a better version of Excite. And then the Google people built a better version of Lycos. Uh, and then um, and, you know, Facebook built a better version of MySpace. MySpace built a better version of Friendster. And, and we were just constantly disrupting each other. And, uh, and with the iPhone, with ubiquitous mobile devices, with cloud computing, what we realized was, well, wait a second. as as the rest of the world can be connected, then we can create new digital experiences that, that go actually let us, let us transform a lot of these existing industries. And, um, and you know, again, Uber being that prime example. What's going to happen, though, is, is that there's going to be this conflict and this, and this sort of contrast with those industries, especially those that have, have grown up with heavy regulation, that have grown up with a lot of, of sort of bureaucracy surrounding the, energy, uh, the industry, because that was the only way to keep either people safe or consumers safe or those companies well-regulated was you had to build this regulatory apparatus that mapped to the business models, these industrial business models. Mm -hmm. And this is the, the prime example in the Uber case, which was um, uh, Travis had a, has a great example of, of in Miami. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll probably uh, butcher the example a little bit, but, 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 but in Miami, when they were first rolling out the, 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 you know, Uber in Miami, apparently um, you had to, there was a law that said if you have a, 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 um, a limousine, a, 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 any kind of chauffeur, that car has to wait for you for 30 minutes 
Uh, you can't call a, a car and have it come right away. It has to be a 30-minute gap between when you call it and, and you being able to get in the car. Hmm. It was literally illegal to be able to get in that car right away. And that law essentially was, was I'm sure, you know, in 1973 when it was created, made a lot of sense because they had this sort of battle between the taxi medallions and the chauffeur industry, and they had to sort of separate the two as two different constructs. But Uber came in and said, well, well obviously, if I'm on my phone, I press a button and a car comes to me, why shouldn't I be able to get into that, right? So again, I'm butchering probably the whole example, but, but you get the point. So we have a lot of laws like that, and those laws and, and regulations are going to be in conflict with what can be possible in the digital world, right? Where with you know, things obviously like digital currency or digital payments, we should be able to have a much more ubiquitous network where we can pay each other. Um, in uh, the world of, um, of transportation, it means I should be able to have on-demand transportation. In the world of hospitality, it means I should be able to open up my, um, uh, my extra space and let people stay there. And, uh, and it's gonna get even more, um, uh, we're gonna see even more controversy in things like healthcare and life sciences where it deals with my health, it deals with my personal information in a much more significant way. And we're at that point where this tension is sort of maybe at its most severe or maybe it could get even, even worse. And startups are gonna have to navigate around that. And uh, they're gonna have to figure out, is is this a law that we think can change in the time frame where we have to be successful as a company, or is it not something that's going to change, in which case we can't skirt that law, and that we're going to have to make sure that we build our, app, that we build our company within the confines of, of whatever this regulation is. So I don't have any specifics on the, on the Zenefit situation other than we, we are going to see this tension between regulation and disruption. Mm -hmm. and Every startup and every industry is going to be a little bit different because in the case of the Uber, they had to go change the laws mm -hmm. to make sure that they could operate within, uh, within these, uh, th these markets. And, and in other cases, you're going to have to comply with, with these laws and figure out a way around that and still build a disruptive technology or disruptive business model. And everything, every company is going to land somewhere on that spectrum. Um, but what I, what I can you know, say for sure is, is that uh, especially DC and a lot of our state and local regulators are not ready for that because... Mm -hmm. Because again, their their sort of the regulatory infrastructure is built for this industrial world that changes every five to ten to twenty years, which means they write things in that don't that there's no anticipated change for, mm -hmm. and that's where we're going to see a lot of uh, um, a lot of conflict. So, so speaking of a similar kind of tension, um, you recently spoke out or wrote about the Apple encryption FBI tension. Yes. What, what's your take on it? You're on Apple's side, but can you explain why? Yeah, so this is another, this is another kind of version of that that maybe just mm -hmm. throws in an international element and, um, and then obviously some, some you know, very, very serious national security issues as well. So it makes it even more complicated, right, where, mm -hmm. where it's not as black and white as the sort of I should be able to call a car on demand and have it come to me. That, that, that's pretty straightforward. Like we believe that, that in a digital world, that should be an experience that, that uh, is efficient and, and safe and easy. In the encryption case, this is one where you have to decide uh, what time frame you're optimizing for mm -hmm. and what problem you're trying to solve. Uh, if you're just trying to solve getting better information about the, the San Bernardino issue, then of course you should open up the phone, right? Mm -hmm. everybody, everybody would say that you should be able to do that. If you zoom out a little bit and you say, well, I'm trying to solve national security over a five-year period, then you have to start to think about the implications of, 
well, if I, uh, if I can open up this phone, does the communication that, that then um, uh, you know, criminals are using just move to a more secure platform? And, and have I solved this problem in a two or three or five year time frame, or have people just moved off using the devices that the FBI is, is sort of um, you know, able to crack? And then if you operate in a five or 10 year time frame and you say, well, let's actually just think about how the internet should work in the next couple of decades. Mm -hmm. Do we believe that it's scalable and it's tenable to have an environment where any court system at any time, no matter who the you know, person is in power, is gonna be able to go to a company and say, I wanna be able to open up this information? Or do we believe that, that on the grand scheme of things, is it better to have technology that we can trust is fully secure? And yes, it will be used for harmful purposes. There's no question, as everything can be. But for the overall, sort of in the, in, at the ma most macro level, for our ability to trust our technology, but, but maybe even more importantly, for our ability to trust that, that some other government can't go to Apple and say, we need you to break this open, mm -hmm. or that some, um, uh, some intruder can't uh, also find that same backdoor that Apple created and then get into our information. You have to sort of start to think about what is our horizon, mm -hmm. and are we operating just on the, the limited basis of this domestic terrorist attack, or are we operating on the more macro basis of all sort of security, all national security, all cybersecurity, and depending on where you land in terms of what you're optimizing for, your answer is gonna be very different. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's, that's, I think, the challenge is, is it's completely within the FBI's responsibility and what their charter is to open up the phone. But then the question is, is it within the overall government's charter, within the overall sort of future of the internet's charter to open up the phone, and how should we think about the implications and the precedent? And, and that's, I think, the most important thing is, is that the FBI has come out and said, well, this is not going to create a precedent. This is a one-time thing. But by definition, that's, that's, that it, it creates a precedent. So, um, so like, I, I don't know what that even means, right? So, um, so this is the, 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 that very thing, the second it exists, there's no reason that, that any court system in China can't go to Apple and say, hey, we have a dissident that has this phone, they have information on it, we need you to open it up. Apple can't say, um, oh, we, we don't know how to open it, we, we've created no back doors or whatever, because they're gonna say, well, the FBI did this and, and you can open it, and if you don't open it, we're not gonna let you sell devices in China. And so you can imagine the, 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 the very complex implications of, of this situation. Mm -hmm. uh, so I am uh, uh, generally for more security, more encryption is going to be better. It can be used in harmful ways, of course, but the attackers can always move to a better platform if they choose. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, but, but I recognize and, and sort of you know, fully recognize this is an incredibly challenging topic. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, it's not one that our current political system is well set up to be able to work through. Um, we, we don't necessarily have a political environment that um, is very good at dealing with nuanced issues um, because of, of, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's an energizing, you know, you know, type of thing. I mean, literally, you saw in the, the last um, uh, the two debates ago, Donald Trump was like, we need Bill Gates to shut off the internet in Syria. I was like, <laughs> Okay, this is, we are not in the right, you know, we're, get to the we're not yeah, in the like, right time frame yeah. for, uh, for nuanced, uh, nuanced technology and by, political issues. By the issues. way, how many of you, are, are there people in the room who do not agree with Apple's stance? Raise your hand. There's one, that's the same enterprise person. Was it really? <laughs> what? All right, good luck selling to enterprises. So, so um, speak, speaking of Bill Gates, because he, he does not agree with Apple's position and has spoken about or written oh, about this as well. Yeah. But can you just real quick, last question, because we've got like 30 seconds. So. By the way, I, I see the other side of it, because again, we're just making a bet on, on I, I we believe. We don't have time to talk about the other side. Uh, oh, okay, no, yeah, yeah. 
no, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna talk about the other side. No but, nuance. But there are, there are gonna be unintended consequences on, on both sides of this. And, and the question is, is that just, it's just which one, which set of unintended consequences do you favor and do you believe are gonna be the most important for the long run of, of society, the economy, our safety, et cetera. Um, and that's where I landed on, what, did you say Bill Gates? Yeah, no, real quick. Okay. We're out of time, but yeah. just give us like a, a one sentence if you can do it. Yeah. Advice on how to work. With Bill Gates? With, with, okay. no, <laughs> with incumbents. Okay. At the same time that you're competing with them. Ah, I see. Okay, Microsoft, great. perfect oh, Microsoft. example for you guys. Yeah, so for us, um, you know, we spent uh, a decade essentially competing with Microsoft, um, and everybody will have their version of, of this big sort of lumbering competitor um, and incumbent in your industry, and uh, and, that, and and it's sort of, both sides have, have a role to play in this. Mm -hmm. as, as the disruptor, um, you have to decide, do you want to partner with, do you want to, uh, uh, you know, sort of do an aggressive attack on the incumbent? And the incumbent has a choice, which is, do I try and stamp them out? Do I block them off completely? Do I sue them? Um, or do I just sort of wait to see how the market pans out um, and then sort of adapt from there? And what Microsoft um, has sort of done overall in the cloud ecosystem and with mobile, et cetera, was... They, they kind of, if you think about 2000, like 2000, 2001, 2003, to like 9, 10, they, they sort of just said, hey, this industry doesn't even exist. Mm -hmm. Like, we are Microsoft, we dominate, we're going to continue to build out the technology that, that, that we, we've always built. And mm -hmm. that meant kept selling you the same phones, the same devices, the same software um, as the world was sort of moving on. They were moving to iPhones and Android devices and Salesforce.com and Amazon Web Services. And what Satya did when he came in was he sort of said, hey, wait a second. When we thought the world wasn't changing, it actually completely transformed mm -hmm. around us. And we look outside of Redmond and we see so much, uh, so many new technologies, so many new companies, so much new innovation. We have to find a way to work with that ecosystem. And so they've taken an approach that used to be sort of almost like competition only, partner never, mm -hmm. to now they've, they've inverted it completely, which is sort of partner first, competition second. And the reason that they've moved to the partner first, competition second is, and this is the reason that we're all here is, is uh, the, the market size and the opportunity size for technology is so massive that we're no longer in this sort of zero-sum world of this industry. Mm -hmm. we, we, you know, in the next five or 10 years, there's easily a two or three X uh, in terms of the scale of, of software, productivity technology, the internet, mobile devices. And so Microsoft is realizing the only way to actually capture that opportunity is we got to build software for the iPhone. We have to build software for Android. We have to be able to partner um, with Salesforce. We have to open source our technology. And so they've, they've really flipped more than we have. We've always been a very, we'll partner um, with all of the incumbents kind of approach. So, so yeah. Aaron's advice is basically to make sure that whatever incumbent you're competing with, they get a new CEO. Yes, okay. pretty much, actually. Um, yeah. Like a lot of Silicon Valley companies, we're in the red, okay. so Thank we you. need to go. Thank oh. you, guys. Good, Don't right? Don't end on that. Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Okay. This podcast is brought to you by HBX, Harvard Business School's digital learning initiative. Introducing Disruptive Strategy with Clayton Christensen and engaging an interactive online learning experience from Harvard Business School's HBX. Learn to create winning strategies to position your organization for long-term success by applying proven disruption and innovation theories from world-renowned strategist Clay Christensen. Disruptive strategy encourages active learning and peer collaboration and requires a commitment of approximately 30 hours over six weeks. Applications are being accepted for upcoming cohorts in August and October. To learn more, visit disruptivestrategy.org.